0: This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay welcome Ken Stringfellow to talk about the Posey's album, Frosting on the Beater, and his new solo album, Dancing in the Moonlight.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minnichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, we've got a special show lined up for our listeners this week. We have a special guest. Exciting, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is.
1: Joining us a little bit later is going to be from the band The Posies, Mr. Ken Stringfellow. He is uh, delayed. We were going to start with him, but he actually is cutting a vocal for a a track that he's recording down in Nashville. So we're going to get started. We're going to do the history of the band, and uh, we're going to jump in and then start talking to him after that. But before we do, Jay, you were familiar with the Posies, obviously, before we decided to do this show, correct? Yeah. Were you familiar with their whole catalog, or were you, like me, mostly familiar with the Frosting on the Beater era?
2: Yeah, I I think I had Deer 23, and I was somewhat familiar with Frosting on the Beater. So those two records were really the only two I was familiar with.
1: And I kind of went the other way. I was familiar with uh, Amazing Disgrace, which was released after Frosting on the Beater. I really hadn't heard a lot of the earlier stuff.
2: I, came, I think I came to them when I sort of went through a power pop phase, like when I got the Seed record, which we reviewed, I got this, I got in the Jellyfish, uh, there was just in the early 90s, there was a cluster of, of bands that were kind of doing the power pop thing. And I think I picked up Tier 23 then.
1: Well, why don't ex- we... Uh, well,
2: <laughs> experimenting.
1: We're Experimenting with new and exciting sounds <laughs> of power pop. <laughs> so why don't we do, instead of talking about when these albums came out and whatnot, which order, let's just do the history of the band
2: history
1: of the band. Posies formed in 1986 by Ken Stringfellow and John Auer at the University of Washington. They recorded some demos between 1987 and 1988, and they released the first Posies album called Failure, and that was self-released. They signed to DGC Records, which was the David Geffen Company, I believe, what that stands for, in 1989, they brought along or they, or they hired John Leckie, who had worked with XTC and Simple Minds in the fall, to produce their first album for DGC, and that was called Dear 23, came out in August of 1990. Then they entered what I call the weird period. So in 1991, they were recording and they scrapped everything. They had a whole album done, just scrapped it. Uh, it was later released via bootleg, and it's called The Lost Sessions. Then they went to work with Don Fleming on an album that was going to be called Eclipse in 1992, but the record label rejected it and said, write more hits. So in April of 1993, they retitled the album and released it as Frosting on the Beater. In 1994 1995, the band changed members. Um, there's been some drummer and bass changes over the years, and this was a major one. An uh, original drummer left, and... They started working on a new album, which was called Amazing Disgrace, released in May of 1996. Ken, the following year, released his first solo record, This Sounds Like Goodbye, in 1987. The band then released in nineteen eighty-eight or 1998, excuse me, 1998, the album Success on Pop Llama Records. John and Ken then went to work on separate bands in 1999, and in, in 2000, the At Least At Last box set was released. Ken released his second solo album, Touched, in 2001, and his third solo album, Soft Commands, in 2004. In June of 2005, the Posies released Every Kind of Light on Rykodisc. And in September of 2010, they released Blood and Candy, or Blood Slash Candy, on Rykodisc. And then just this October, Ken released Danzig in the Moonlight, a solo record. And that was released on... Uh, the Spark and Shine label. Now, in addition to his work with Posies and Solo, he's also recorded with Big Star, uh, or the surviving members at that time, because Chris Bell had passed away, and then uh, at 2010, Alex Chilton passed away. He's recorded and toured with R.E.M., and been a member of the Minus Five. And that is the history of the Posies, interspersed with some history of Ken Stringfellow, who's going to be our guest, coming up shortly. We did get some Facebook feedback for this record. Lots of likes. Lots of people like this record, Jay. They were excited when we posted that we are going to be talking about Frosting on the Beater, and we're going to be talking about Danzig in the Moonlight shortly with Ken. Uh, Joe Roiland and Dimitri Dummytree both chimed in that this was their favorite all-time Posies record. Alright, Jay, without further ado, joining us from Memphis, Tennessee on the cell phone, Mr. Ken Stringfellow. Ken, how are you doing this evening?
0: Uh, pretty good, man. Been a... Been a been a hell of a day. Did a lot of stuff today.
1: So how's Jay and I... Feeling? Oh yeah, how's your voice feeling? You were recording some vocals, I believe.
0: Yeah, it feels good. I mean, I actually um, got quite into it today. I mean, just before, you know, we had to delay the start of this, listeners, because uh, I was still busting out some lead vocals on this project, and it's actually sounding pretty good. I've <clears> had <throat> a little bit of a workout today.
1: Well, we've talked to people in a variety of different locales. I think we talked to one person at their motorcycle shop. And we've talked to, uh, you know, various musicians either on the road or at home. I don't think we've ever talked to anybody at a recording studio. So this is a first for us, which is actually odd when you consider we talk to musicians all the time and we haven't talked to anybody at a studio.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah. Well, you know, in the studio, I mean, it's the famous place where phones never work because the walls are so dense and people are working. So... Um, it's only we are we're only benefiting that it's the end of the day for us i've just walked down to the parking lot so actually you're just talking to somebody's next to a recording studio i hate to disappoint
1: you <laughs> ah that's semantics we're not worried about semantics mm-hmm. so you have a new record out it's called danzig in yes. the moonlight it's on um mm-hmm. it's on spark and shine records and mm-hmm. you've just been on uh quite a tour you were in the uh Eastern European, or you, there were some countries and some cities that I had not seen a lot of people touring in. Um, how did you end up playing? I know you you did the recording in um, Brussels, but how did you end part, up? Yep. Yeah, it, was it in also in some other studios?
0: Well, I, the the book, the album was made in Brussels. Um, I also worked on it in Seattle, in Amsterdam, in L.A. I had musicians from Mumbai playing on it. I uh, did a little recording in Italy, I guess that's kind of about it. Oh, I did some recording in Tucson, too, yeah, forgot about that. Um, but generally, the, yeah, my album was recorded, kind of tracked live in a way, uh, with this, with these really great Dutch musicians who I work with a lot, uh, in, in this great studio in Brussels, what can I say. Um, it's a great place. But then, you know, of course, we added some things on the top, and the album sounds pretty dense and pretty, you know, it's quite some elaborate arrangements but a lot of it's live
1: i would think that if you're recording whether it's even just bits and pieces in studios all across the globe that you'd probably you might get a different sound being in different studios but it actually has a fairly consistent sound throughout the record is that are you going to digital when you're doing a lot of the recording to keep it the same or are you using tape in a lot of places how what's your preference i guess
0: well, my preference is whatever sounds good at the time, but uh, this album was recorded digitally. Um, I think that the consistency of sound has to do with the fact that, well, almost all of it's tracked live and it's all like done in the same studio, except for a couple songs that were not. But at the end of the day, it was all mixed at the same place by the same guys, these guys who call themselves The Lab in this studio, which is called The Lab. That's in LA. And they're amazing. Yeah, they, they they really they added a lot. They they helped me kind of create the opening number of the album, Jesus Was an Only Child. Um, and but they mixed everything and they and they played on they played little bits that I don't I don't even know what they played on the album and they, they kind of snuck things in during the mixing and uh, they they really made the album very cohesive. It's
2: business
0: adding up extinction
1: How does that differ from when you're recording with the Posies? Is it is it a different process because of your long you know relationship working with John, and um, I'm sure that you know going back, you guys have probably shorthand both writing and recording. Is there a is there a different approach when both writing and recording solo albums versus um, band albums?
0: Well, uh, sort of. Um You know, I mean, I have to share. Uh, It's a band situation. Uh, And here, I just can kind of do whatever. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, I mean, I only make a Posey's album once in a blue moon. I mean, I've only made two of them in this century. But I make, like, you know, 15-plus albums a year as a producer, engineer, arranger. So in in a weird way, it's it's a comparison that I hadn't thought to make in a while because, you know, my musical headspace is, like, kind of, you know, well into the stuff that I've been doing for the last year or so, which is, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of the last dozen and a half albums I've made, as opposed right. to it's been now, like, a couple of years since I made a Posey's album. But, you know, to compare, um, for one thing, you know, with my stuff and with, you know, because I'm bringing fresh blood in to what I do all the time with, you know, younger musicians or musicians I haven't even met before or didn't even meet, I mean, I, the people in Mumbai, I, um, I didn't even meet them actually. They, they kind of sent in their stuff remotely. Uh, I played in Mumbai this year and met the engineer, but the musicians did their stuff later. But you know, I'm bring, bringing a lot of fresh energy. And with going to, like making a Posie's album, uh, you know, it, you have to really push hard to get everybody to see it in a new way. You know, to to, to say, okay, we're making let's this we're making our first album. Every album is our first album, guys. We have to think that way and kind of. You know, uh, not just um, the, oh yeah, what we did last time worked really great, let's do that again. You know, that, that not not that my bandmates are unadventurous by any means, it's just that, you know, you gotta fight against your own cliches or whatever. And, you know, for me, I work, worked with a lot of really interesting musicians who I've done, done records with on this solo album, you know, the string players and my core band, you know, are all people I've done lots of stuff with, but it's still like, you know, Stuff I've done mostly in the last year or two so it's still pretty fresh and my whole you know these people have influenced me a lot but by the just their skill and and energy and talent that they bring to the picture and that you know it's it's kind of it is kind of a restart you know in many ways you know this we can you know like a like a like a franchise reboot uh huh. this album is quite different from its predecessors in terms of you know cast characters and Location and all of that, Uh, you know. I I guess what keeps me in the game is fresh ideas. And my band, the Pogies, you know, one of my bands, they're capable of fresh ideas. That's for sure. You know, it's just it's just a little different. I mean, it's nice to have a history with folks, but I'm I'm a great believer in in new blood, man. I I mean, I I have to have new horizons to, to move towards. I'm a restless soul in certain ways. An explore.
1: Well, that, I, I guess that leads me back to our focus a lot on the most of our episodes are looking back at older records. And you mentioned about New Blood and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You changed, the rhythm section changed a few times with the posies. How, did that affect mm-hmm. the sound and like h- how you guys would write? Or when you and John write, do you write just together, you two, or separately and then bring the songs to the band? Like what was the dynamic when the band was, I guess, putting out more records in the 90s.
0: In the 90s, of course, you know, uh, you know, I was quite, you know, I was getting started in many ways. You know, I mean, I, of course, our band dates back to the 80s. Right. I have a little bit more experience before that as well, just in the kind of formative years, bands and things. You know, in the 90s, I guess, you know, the, 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 the growth between albums was pretty severe because we were just learning everything about our craft, and, and that's... That, you know, make you know in your twenties. I mean, like two years go goes by, and like massive amounts of things have changed in terms of maturity, experience. You know, and just kind of eating eating the world alive. You know, like trying to just take that big juicy red fig called planet Earth and suck it dry. And the funny thing is, hey, I'm kind of I'm kind of still like that. You know. Um, So maybe it's not so much different for me, but but in the band, you know, we had some moments of having members who maybe either had agendas that weren't really, that were just kind of for themselves, I guess, you know, and seeing seeing our band's sudden success as a kind of vehicle for themselves um, in a way, or musicians that just weren't that awesome. I mean, believe it or not, I'm not going to name names by any means, you know. Right. And, and then they're, you know, so it, it kind of just took a while, you know. And, and now we've been playing with Matt Harris and Dryas and Wallach for uh, 11 years. So that's, I think, things click much faster with those guys than what we had in the past. Um, even though we've had some very good musicians in the posies in the past, it's a matter of chemistry, maturity. You know, because, of course, we're all older now. Whoever, whoever was in the band then was also a young person. But, and now, you know, whoever's in the band now, just by virtue of being, you know, 30 plus or 40 plus, depending on who it is, it's more mature. But uh, that, that, that does just kind of give an atmosphere for communication that's generally a little more direct you know? Mm-hmm. And that, that, of course, makes things easier. You know, we did an interesting experiment on the Posey's 2005 album, Every Kind of Light. We wrote the songs in the studio and shared the the creative process and the writing credits and everything with the four of us. Then on the last album, you know, we kind of went back to what is more of our tradition, which is John bringing in some demos and me bringing in some demos and going to a rehearsal place. And Kind of working those up you know both have yielded interesting songs and if we do another album in the future i'm sure we'll
2: you know find some other twist to it seeing as you are in so many different projects do you um you sort of like continuously write and then kind of uh dog ear like what material goes with what project or you just sort of when you're in that project that time whatever you're writing at that time goes to it how does that work out for you
0: Generally, I, I write kind of tailor-made, you know, to the, to the project, to the situation. Um, I'm, you know, I would love to have the luxury of just being able to put my writer's hat on every day, but generally, pretty much every day, I am like working on stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I, there's not really a quiet moment to really write, so, not that I need a quiet moment to write all the time, I mean, you know, if you say, I need, I need a song and I need it in half an hour, needs to be good you know i'll come up with something for you and it probably will be good and interesting but of course for more personal things i like to take a little more time than that but basically yeah when i've when the pressure's on that uh, you know that's kind of when it has to happen sometimes when i've got a project of greater magnitude you know especially working on my own album you know this last album this new album of mine you know i mean i I took time out to write i went disappeared somewhere and spent you know a week working on some tunes
1: do you do you work on a particular instrument like do you have a favorite acoustic guitar that you like to write on or do you bounce around from different instruments depending on what mood you're in or what the you know what you're kind of feeling for the song
0: i guess it's kind of more just picking up something that inspires me and just kind of messing with it i mean i'm i'm as happy to start making patterns in midi as i am picking up an old acoustic guitar or you know, a piano or whatever, I mean, like, I, I basically, I try to expand my utility and versatility on different instruments so that, so that it kind of doesn't matter, you know, I mean, I can kind of just pick up whatever and make something from it, and that way, you know, I won't be stuck in my personal guitar clichés or my personal piano clichés. Right. You know, I can I can kind of just get it from from whatever, you know, I mean, Heck, you know, I mean, even writing uh, with a with a, with a a piece of paper and a pencil is, is possible too, you know, like sitting down with some sheet music and starting to put stuff together that way that I don't get to hear until later.
1: Do you actually chart, like, are you the type of person where you actually chart out the music, like, note for note, or are you kind of figuring out, I got a riff and I'm going to try to apply some hum of melody over top, or, or are you more like a lyric person, like, I'm going to, I got a bunch of lyrics, I'm going to try to figure out what the melody is for the lyrics and then go from there? Or is it just kind of whatever is working at the time?
0: I think the thing that I like to do is maybe make a mood. You know, that mood could come from rhythm. It could come from timbre, you know, the kind of sound. It could come from chord shapes or chord patterns. It could come from a melody. It could come from a soundscape or a sample. It could be whatever, but the mood suddenly gets interesting and I want to capture it, and then it starts to suggest things, and then I can add structure or not. You know, some, some pieces of music demand like a heavy structure, and some pieces of music could be like totally ambient and have no structure. i just kind of, you know, I mean, I, it's pretty rare that I'd write lyrics first, but, but it's not unheard of, and that can happen too. Really, again, like by trying to learn a lot and trying to be versatile, I try and make it so that I don't have to do anything a certain way, and that if inspiration comes from any direction, or I'm in a circumstance with any number of tools to use, that I can use those tools. To, and you know, I don't have any superstition about what might work better.
1: One of the songs I wanted to mention on the on the new record, which. Usually, I, I don't know if anybody else has this, but sometimes when I get a new record, I listen to it, and I, I like a certain song, but then as I listen to it more and more, I find like a new favorite song, and then I maybe listen to it more. But for this record, the first time I heard it, and basically ever since then, my favorite song has been "Drop Your Pride." And mm, it's an interesting one. It's a really interesting song. It has I described I played it for my wife, who's a music teacher, and she was like, it has like a cabaret burlesque feel to it. Yeah, with the rhythm of it, and can you talk a little bit about like where that song came from and, and the writing behind it?
0: Well, um, when when I make an album like a solo album, what I like to do best is have I like to come prepared with some songs that have been demoed and like you know there's a structure and you know they, they they kind of are what they are, and then I like to come up with some curveballs. Either stuff that I just totally make up on the spot and force it into a structure, or something like a structure, or something that's really just really bare bones. And while I was going through the demos that I knew uh, from, you know, that I'd assembled over the previous years, I found a couple of snippets that I, d- I didn't even remember making them. You know, I mean, I just kind of found a snippet that had this had this riff and a little bit of the chorus and. I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting, I remember doing it, it's gotta have been like three or four years, that that demo was kind of sitting around, forgotten, and, you know, I was already in the studio when I, you know, went through my hard drive and found this old uh, demo, and uh, so then I just kind of said, okay, guys, I got this thing, here's this riff, it goes, and then here's kind of what I could see as a structure, and here's the chorus, and here's the thing, so, that version of the song, you know, which is recorded live with myself uh, playing guitar, uh, my kind of my main musical partner in crime these days, J.B. Myers playing bass, Joost Kroon, another Dutchman playing drums, and then Tim Cox, another Dutchman playing accordion, and the accordion is going to all kinds of effects and is all distorted and things like that. And that's all done live, and the song didn't really have a structure, so I just kind of I played in the control room and just called out places to go, like, okay, B-flat, you know, okay, F, you know, just kind of kept throwing curveballs, but these guys are so good, they could just roll with it. Um, so it, it's, it's a take that only happened once, you know, we never played it again, we just played that, we played through the song once, and that was, that was good. So like at the end, where I'm kind of jumping from chord to chord, and there's all these like wailing vocals, like... What you don't hear is the the guide vocal from the live tick line, Okay, D minor, E seven, B seven. You know, just kind of yelling it out. And, and you the James Brown them. And it, yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, one time, <laughs> um, that, it's it's kind of kind of similar vibe. And and you know, they're so good that it doesn't teeter, but it almost teeters, and that gives it a kind of rollicking flavor. And then, so we had this moody piece of music, you know, and, and we, you know, uh, I kind of figured there'd be horns overdubbed at some point. That that happened in January. Uh, I had like, you know, a, some guys in Amsterdam do a pass, and I had some guys in Seattle do a pass and just added all their horns together. And then while I was back home in, you know, went back home to Paris and in December, kind of Christmas holiday time, you know, there's nothing going on music production-wise and I took the time. I, Time off you know, anyway, to to work on the lyrics. So for so each so one day I you know I kind of tried to work on a song a day if it needed lyrics or overdubs. So just you know set it up. Okay, what's the song need? Tambourine. Okay, backing vocal. Okay, done. Next day. Well, this tune, you know, uh, it basically only needed a vocal and uh, and lyrics. So I didn't really. Have any idea what it was going to be about and that's fun that's a great place to start you know your subconscious is already working on it and probably has been you know my subconscious has probably been working on it the whole time but I haven't given it a valve to get out so in this case I knew that the, the thing had to be kind of like being easy and as it were and so like I uh you know I, I got a couple of bottles of champagne and started to suck them down and I, I wanted the I wanted my vocal to be a little bit out of tune and wobbly, and all the things that would happen if you're kind of a little bit drunk, which I've I've never really done that for a vocal before. But I thought it would be it'd be fun, and it would fit kind of the the id of this song. You know, that that's what mm-hmm. comes out. You know, when you when you turn off the upper brain, the lower brain starts to take over. So, first the first night. I certainly drank the champagne effectively, and I didn't come up with anything. Maybe a little bit of suggestion for a melody, but it wasn't free yet. And this song had to be pretty. It, had, it, it would take some serious looseness to get a kind of melody on this. That's not—it's not such not a pop song, you know. So it couldn't be. It couldn't be thought through. It had to be felt through. But then, but then in the in the night, as I slept, I woke up in the morning with like the second verse in my head, and I'm like, oh my god, the words are there, and wrote them down. And then next night, you know, like uh, more champagne and then it all all came out, all the vocals. There's like 20 tracks of vocals of me doing all kinds of things, you know, and, and screaming, shouting, whispering, singing, wailing and they're all in there. And I had done some, you know, I like to also just sort of click through, you know, Google searches and things like that and stumble into odd topics and i'd wanted to read about the team that had put down the original bathysphere because i sort of mentioned the bathysphere already these you know uh, early 20th century deep ocean explorers one of the things they saw when they were down there is they saw uh, a fish that attracted curious Potential prey with its glowing teeth—it had phosphorescent teeth that made it into one. You know, those glow-in-the-dark teeth on these deep-sea fish. And I only sang that line once because on other takes there's other there's some other lyric, but that was just so interesting I had to keep that. One. <laughs>
1: This what you just described as your as your process for this song. When you look back, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you started in the '80s. Were you mm-hmm. sitting there with like a Task Cam four track back in the '80s and like doing this sort of thing, or was that not even in the in your realm at that point? Were you guys just like on a boombox recording those like first Posie's demos? Uh,
0: well, not exactly. Actually, we um, well, it's a little complicated. Um... You know, we had bands before the Posies, John and I, and we did some interesting things. But one of the tools we had was uh, we had an 8-track recording studio. Uh, John and his dad had had put a rather nice home studio together um, with an 8-track half-inch machine and some outboard gear and uh, a desk, you know, and and all this kind of thing. And they had a pretty pretty sweet setup, I, I must say. And so, you know, we got to experiment on that all through high school. And only when I went away to college in Seattle, we came from Bellingham, Washington, an hour and a half north of Seattle. You know, I, at one point, I, you know, kind of took a new musical tack that sort of laid the ground for what would become the Posies, and we started to write. Of course, John still had a studio; he was still in Bellingham. Um, you know, being a year younger than me, he was still in high school, so he would still kind of work on stuff. In this eight-track studio, and me, I had to borrow a four-track uh, while I was in, in, in living in the dormitory, and uh, start laying down some rather primitive demos, and they're pretty, they're pretty primitive, they're pretty funny, um, and, and I, I think I used a drum machine as well or something, and, and just it's very very rough. And uh, actually, there's a, there's a reissue of of the album Failure, our first album, mm-hmm. that's, um, that, that was released in Spain at, about ten years ago. And uh, it's got some of these four track demos of mine, and they're pretty funny. They're, they're amusing, and they're rough, and they're kind of sweet. For the most part, you know, we actually had access to a, an eight track studio, and, and what would have been kind of our first demo just morphed into our first album. You know, we, as we had some songs, and, feb- you know, we had a dozen songs, we said, well, let's just record all of them. And, you know, kinda of do it a little bit for reels.
1: So was it based on that demo that you guys ended up signing with D G C or were you already working on the next record at that point?
0: Well, I mean the demo became our first album. Right. Called Failure, which was released in nineteen eighty eight and and it turned out to be, you know, more than a demo, even though it's an eight track well, it's sort of a sixteen-track recording because we did some bouncing or whatever, but that, that's sort of academic or whatever. But um, so that album came out on an independent label called Pop Poplama, in, in, based in Seattle, and it did really well. I mean, it did it, it, it did really well. I mean, we first we released it as a homemade cassette, and that sold a lot and got on the radio. And and then Poplama came along and, and pressed it as an LP and then a CD. And we you know we sold like twenty thousand records, which was very good you know and with the the momentum that we had in the Northwest as we became a very good live draw and were on commercial radio plus the momentum that the the Pacific Northwest had in general with all the bands starting to get signed you know and um, you know that led us to being signed to to Geffen in 1989 soon after in you know we got signed late 1989 and by 1990 we were working on our first album forgetting which uh resulted in the album dear 23 released that year
1: and that was with you recorded that with um john Lecky, if i'm who worked yes. with like xtc and did so did you guys pick his brain like for those xtc stories and that sort of thing when you were in the studio with him?
0: Well, sure, yeah. I mean, definitely. I and mean, he's got better stories than that, even. I mean, you know, he, he worked on Dark Side of the Moon, he worked on right. uh, Plastic Ono Band, he worked on All Things But Past, mean, he worked on some pretty heavy albums. Um, he just, he was riding high, having just uh, done the Stone Roses debut album. You know, he was just a great engineer and uh, great to hang out with, and, you know, uh, just a, a cultured English gentleman. But uh, yes, XTC also, who, of course, you know, we're also on Jeff and, you know, I mean, our you could see where our interest lay. You know, we we're really big fans, that's for sure. You know, we, we've also, you know, we worked with Nick Lanay on Amazing Disgrace, who, who had also worked on, a, on an XTC album. Kind of that was kind of a credential enough for us.
1: Did you look through their resumes and go, OK, this guy's worked with these bands. What's that's good enough for us? Or was it more well, like, we, we well, we kind of said, Who,
0: who's worked on our favorite albums and let's get right. the names going. And, and that, you know, so we we dug deep to find Nick and then discovered other records he'd done. John Leckie was a bit more known. And, and again, because of the Stone Roses thing, I mean, you know, he had a huge hit hit album on his hands at that moment. Um, so it was a particularly timely choice.
1: So in between those two albums, in between Dear 23 and um, Amazing Disgraces, Frosting on the Beater, and that mm-hmm. sort of has an interesting life in that, from what I've read, there was a recording session in 91, and that got scrapped, and then they, mm-hmm. then he started to work with Don Fleming, um, mm-hmm. and the label initially rejected the album, which was, I believe it titled Eclipse at that point, and you guys went back into the studio to do some more recording for what ultimately becomes... Crossing in the beater. Can you talk a little bit about that process of, like, dealing with the label
0: yeah, kind of saying first no? First of all, the, the whole thing of, like, no, they didn't say no. I mean, like, that, that's, like, myth-making because people love to, like, call the record labels, like, a big evil thing that projects, like, uh, you know, all this stuff on these poor, hapless artists. And I'm sorry, but that's just t- total mythology. I, I don't know why people want to believe that so much, um, you know, but we kept working on the album you know, in a dialogue with our NR, who, you know, they would do, we had a lot of artistic freedom, probably total artistic freedom, I guess. You know, we would talk about things and say, okay, where are we at? Are we happy with this? You know, like, you know, like, yeah, you know, feeling pretty good and maybe we, sh- but, you know, talk about keep, let's keep writing, let's keep doing it, you know, and we, we, you know, I mean, it wasn't like your album is rejected or something like that. That's just not accurate.
1: It didn't come um, back with a stamp that said rejected across the front. No, then... it didn't. <laughs>
0: um, we uh, So, yeah, so after touring a lot for um, Year 23 in the States, um, you know, we've gotten kind of our live act together in, in a whole different way. You know, and when we made Year 23, we'd never toured. We would played in the Northwest. We'd been down the West Coast twice, um, but not like become like the solid touring act that 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 we would become and over the course of you know starting out the old-fashioned way playing with nobody and just going out and going out and going out and playing like you know i don't know 100 shows i don't know maybe more i don't even know
1: we played a lot
0: uh from from the from the time that due 23 was released uh, the end of September 1990 until the end, you know, until the end of June or so in 1991, we were on tour. That really, we really developed, we got, we, we, we trimmed a lot of fat live-wise and just were a lot less precious and a lot more powerful, you know, and, um, and we wanted to capture that right away, so we took our live sound engineer and we went into a studio that we liked and, and started to record and, and it just wasn't, Ready. I mean, the writing process wasn't done. We were just a bit hasty. You know, we we had some new songs, but not really enough to really, you know, we kind of, when we got out of there, we knew two things. We knew that we didn't want to record any of our bass player's songs um, because they really didn't fit the format. Uh, And he was really insistent, you know, that we record his songs and that he'd be given like an equal amount of space in the album. And we were like, this is never going to work, you know, and we said, you're either you know you got to do that somewhere else and this band is john and my song sorry dude you know that's just the way it is and so you know he quit and you know and oddly enough things immediately got better um that just kind of a mental weight was off our shoulders not having to adjust that tension all the time and try and make a pleasing situation that was pleasing nobody um and so you know we just said okay you know this whole situation was cheap you know we only spent like 10 grand making this recording or whatever, which is like nothing in those days. So, like, let's just, you know, let's t- carry on and let's let's really maybe take this a bit more deluxe, you know? And so we started talking about potential producers and um, Don Fleming had just done Bandwagon-esque and he'd worked a little bit on some of the demos for Goo. So he was well known to the folks at, at DGC um, and well-liked. And, you know, Ben Wagonesque was doing really well. So, and uh, we thought he seemed like he had great potential. He knew all the right people, that's for sure. So we uh, we met with him. We said, okay, let's 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 just get together and spend a couple of days in a studio in Seattle and quote unquote, see what happened. And that yielded like half an album. And so we were like, hey, this is great. This is done as a three piece. You know, I played bass or John played bass that seemed very encouraging so then we uh, then we said okay this is great let's book a bunch of studio time in New York and let's do it up and we went to New York and recorded it your sound and that was great um, and we sort of felt like we had an album at that point you know and then we uh, then we went to to LA with the intention to mix everything and uh, got together with this guy named John Hammond uh, who'd worked with Neil Young and uh, the Beach Boys and all kinds of interesting things, and um, he was a total nightmare. <laughs> uh, he'd just got he'd just gotten out of rehab, and he was just not. He had no perspective. He, he did a couple of really good mixes first couple of days, then he just fell apart. He just wasn't really ready for the real world yet, and 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 he was emotionally extremely volatile. And then the mixes started to suck, and then we're like, okay, so let's let's stop here. And at that point, we had the makings of a pretty good record, but seeing that the mixing has been, you know, not yielded a final album, we said, like, well, now what? And, you know, the label's like, keep keep going, write some more songs, you know, like, take your time. Like, let's just see what what comes out of it. You know, what's what have you got to lose? And, you know, like, we, we got to kind of regroup and... You know, if we're gonna, we got to figure out who's gonna mix this thing, and we, that's gonna take time, etc. So we're like, interesting. So songs were, were were added, and we got back together with Don for another session in Seattle, and it went great. We recorded all these tunes, and by then we'd uh, stumble onto uh, David Bianco, who was marvelous. He'd been sort of one of many, uh, many of the many minions of Rick Rubin, you know, slaving away on on albums big time, you know, ACDC and the Red Hat Chili Peppers and all this kind of stuff as a kind of assistant, but actually doing more than that. You know, he's a very, very good engineer. So when we when we did this sec- our third session with Don in Seattle, we were like, wow, we've got some, that, that yielded dream all day and flavor of the month and this kind of thing. And then we're like, okay, now we're, now we're getting somewhere. and mix it all and then we're like okay now we've got a record
2: the, the album's got a really cohesive and distinctive um guitar sound how, how how much time did you guys spend and how did that come about is that are really you guys just trying to translate your live sound
0: in a way I feel like you know we were into kind of the british approach before that which is like a more complex mix you know with lots of you know separate effects on everything and Lots of little overdubs, and th- that, that was kind of our vibe. And John Leckie suited that vibe pretty well. However, Don Fleming's approach was kind of like, hey, that, that's, you know, we're an American band. We're coming to your town. We're going to, we, we like to party down. Let's, <laughs> let's, not, let's not go for this British approach. Let's like keep it a little bit more lean, mean, yeah, yeah. you know, and sort of representing our live sound. You know, there's kind of a left right thing happening with the guitars. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, just keep the overdubs to a minimum, you know, unless, you you know, if something's got to be there, it's really need to be there as opposed to just throwing every idea on and then trying to, you know, mix your way out of that hole. And I I think that was really the right thing, you know, I mean, it it really cleared up a lot of space in our music and and gave it, you know, uh, when when there are less things, those things all have more space, they get a bit taller. Um, this is kind of the, the Van Halen idea of production, and it really, it, it really works. You know, he, he just and, and another thing that he was really into was um, small amps working hard. Mm. That was his big thing. You know, all the amps he worked with were like super champs, small superos, stuff like that. Even the, even the um, the venerable pig Nose amp was was brought in. Um, it's all tiny. Or pretty small amps, just totally blowing up. That was his. That was his vibe. Yeah. Great sound.
2: Absolutely. It really borders on that line of, uh, you know, a lot of records that try to pull that off. They, the guitar tones get very muddy and kind of ugly. And uh, this yeah. this album really walks that line of like that nasty, snarly kind of sound, but always very musical. So. Uh, yeah.
0: There's, there's like no guitar pedals on that entire album. What I, that's something I think is quite interesting. I, we didn't even really own any, you know what I mean? Like, not nothing any good at that time. And so mm-hmm. it's just all amp sounds.
2: So was it a big education for you guys in terms of just, you know, learn, understanding guitar better, guitars better, uh, amps better? Is, is, that, is that fair to say?
0: Oh yeah, sure. I mean, definitely eye-opening. I mean, you know, we, we kind of just, when we got a bunch of money, you know, we kind of were like thinking, oh, let's buy some really gigantic amps, and those were the times, you know, and we had these huge, like, Mesa Boogie head 410, or, you know, 412 cabinets, and all this stuff, you know, and, and really ridiculous stuff, but that's all we had, you know, we didn't, I didn't have a big amp collection yet. Um, over the course of the year, 1992, where we worked on the album, I started to acquire a lot more amps, and so as the sessions go on, more and more interesting things come into play, and more guitars... And things like that but uh okay. really like we kind of started from the point of view of our live thing and that was just kind of lame in a way i mean it's basically things that we had to not really record very well mm-hmm. um they're kind of all low end in a sense uh very a uh, very grunge but um <laughs> not really uh nuanced for recording
2: so do you guys feel any pre- i mean being you you know you're from seattle there's obviously this uh I, I, I think you I think you even said you know it probably helped you getting signed in terms of what was going on in Seattle at that time and um, there was a lot of focus there and there's definitely sort of a stereotype of a sound did you guys ever feel any pressure to sort of conform to that
0: not really you know we kind of I mean first of all we wouldn't have really been capable you know we were never gonna we were never gonna get the Jarl going in our vocals and this kind of thing we are <laughs> just in a whole other universe you know, yeah, so, yeah. I mean, you know, there were times when we realized we picked a hard road, you know, uh, that, that if we wanted to make it easy, yeah, we probably could have done a better job copying what was going on around us, I guess. But also we really enjoyed somehow, we uh, masochists that we are, we really kind of enjoyed being a fish out of water. You know, we, we, we were into what we we're into and we were pretty stubborn and kind of myopic in a, in a, in a way that I think actually served us well. Um, because you know, I'm sorry, but there's—I I, I don't think there's—I hate to do this, you know—and but I don't think there's one single person in, in anywhere on this planet listening to a candlebox record right now. It's just not happening, <laughs> um, you know. And and there's a few people still like you, just want to want to talk about this album, etc., and presumably still listen to it. I mean, that, I think that's a good sign. It's uh, interesting
1: that you mentioned you know in terms of the bands that were going on i kind of think that in the crevices of not the crevices but in the, in in sort of the outer reaches of what was going on in the 90s you had like bands like or artists like matthew sweet or bands like velvet crush that the, the posies fit in well with and matthew sweet obviously had quite a bit of commercial success in the 90s velvet crush were a little bit more of a college band and th- it seemed like there was i don't know if you guys are comfortable with the with the power pop Label, but that's I think in retrospect that's what a lot of people um, use to sort of define the posy sound. Were you guys aware of like those sorts of artists like Velvet Crush and and looking to tour with those sorts of bands, or were you more interested in in expanding out on especially on touring with playing with you know bands that are were more I guess mainstream at the time?
0: Well, I mean, of course we're aware of all those bands. We did play with Matthew Sweet once um, at a festival. I guess, well, I mean, he seemed kind of mainstream at the time. He, he, that would have been fine for us to go on tour with him. I think he seemed like kind of a big big artist at the time. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of just a matter of what comes your way and opportunities you have, et cetera. You know, we, we toured with the Replacements. They were big heroes of ours, and that, that was a really big tour for us. And then, But then we got kind of you know, into the position where we could take bands on tour with us, uh, and that that was also pretty interesting. You know, we got to pick some interesting bands uh, to go with us. So we took either bands from, from home, like Love Battery, toured with us, or bands that we liked. We took Velocity Girl on tour. We uh, took uh, the band Fuzzy on tour. We right? took um, New Jersey band Hypno Love Wheel, uh, who I thought were really wonderful. We took them on tour, things like that. That was kind of fun to do, to take fans on tour with us. We were offered lots of, you know, tours as an opening act, and, and they just didn't, you know, we were offered like the charlatans and way late in the game, you know, I would have been thrilled if it had been 1983, but in 1993, the idea of touring with was the Fix wasn't exactly um, <laughs> kind of like, you know, a spine-tingling notion. That seems like so, a mismatch. You know, we, we didn't really get offered, you know, support tours that were really appealing at all. And the thing is, you know, on a support tour, of course, you're gonna like lose thousands of dollars. So, uh, no, thousands, tens of thousands. Um, so you might as well. I mean, at those days, you get the label to pay for it. But the only, you know, in fact, once, um, once Frosty on the Beater came out, I mean, we never did a support tour ever again, except for one significant one, which was our first tour of Europe, which was opening for Teenage Grand Club. Now that was a dream come true.
1: And did you guys? I, I, I'm sort of leading in another question, but did you get to play with REM at all?
0: Well, I mean, as the Poseys?
1: yeah. Like, did you ever open for them? Because I know you worked with, you know, REM. Then later on, um, on the I believe the reveal record, and and did touring with them. So I'm wondering. I yeah, guess I, mean, I was I, leading I into like where 10, that relationship 10 years started. With those guys, yeah. Um,
0: well, that was more. Um, well, that was just another another Seattle thing, I guess. Poseys never played with them. But uh, you know we had um, common friends, as it were. Well, the, the short of the matter is, is that uh, they started doing records in Seattle, and and Seattle being a small town, you know, there's certain places where musicians would hang out, and you know one of those at that time was a venue called the Crocodile Cafe, and that in that place uh, the Posies were, sort of, uh, you know, we were that was a place to hang out for sure. We were the first band that ever played there. In fact. And um, and Peter Buck ended up marrying the owner of the place and moving to Seattle. And we had just a lot of common friends, and things just kind of morphed in that direction via a band called the Minus Five, um, which which was at its inception was a duo of myself and this guy Scott McCoy, uh, who's still, you know, uh, playing with Peter Buck all the time and, and played in R.E.M. from 1994 until the band's recent demise. Uh, and Scott and I, you know, go way back. He gave the pose; He's our first gig and our first review. And he was kind of a hero, of, a local hero of ours, you know, and um, and a good friend eventually. And um, you know, the, we started all playing together in this band, the minus five, the and then Peter joined, and John joined, and kind of like that. Um, so that's kind of the origin of that relationship.
1: And then it was after um, it was after the amazing disgrace release, which was in '96, that you started. I think you put out your first solo record in the following year. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Were you guys sort of taking a break at that point, or was that just a collection of songs that you had sort of built up on your own and you wanted to put out? What was the impetus behind doing your solo record?
0: Uh, Well, uh, I'll tell you, um, it was a very uncertain time for me. Uh, You know, uh, I went through a divorce and had kind of a tumultuous rebound that's great for songwriting. (laughs) And, uh, you know, also at that time, uh, my bandmate John just, he started to go a bit weird. Um, and he more or less, more or less disappeared off the face of the earth, really. I mean, like, he resurfaced enough to make our final album in 1998, but in 1997, he, you know, he, he became weird. Uh, probably drugs were involved, certainly, probably some kind of diagnosable depression or something like it was involved. I, I To this day, I don't know. He's rather straightened out these days, and I'm not sure he can really describe it either, but he just became unwilling to do anything, including answer the phone, go outside his apartment, whatever. I mean, he just withdrew and uh, didn't really quit until later, but, but he wanted to leave the label, and you know, he fell yeah, you know, He kind of, he sort of just you know, shoot himself in the foot multiple times to prove that things were going to go bad, he kind of derailed things. Because I think that's kind of took, took things out on himself that ended up affecting us. That's my personal view. Ask him for his opinion, but that's sort of seemed to be what happened. So I, in 1997, I really had no idea what was going on. You know, he was adamant about getting off of guessing, you know, despite the fact our next record... You know, maybe they wouldn't have promoted it well. Maybe they're getting tired of us. Maybe he saw that writing on the wall. However, you know, we probably would have gotten like half a million dollars for that album and spent half of that uh, at best. Uh, so, you know, from a, from a kind of investment point of view, it was a rather poor strategy. But hey, uh, and you know, so it's kind of unsure. It, you know, he just disappeared. He stopped calling, any returning calls or doing anything. We didn't really have email at this time. I mean, I did, but. I don't know if he did, Well, anyway, it wouldn't matter because he wouldn't have answered it. Uh, and so I didn't know what was going on. So I started to just develop other things. And so uh, this band Lagwagon uh, called me up and asked me to play with them on their album and do a tour. And that that was a great, fun, lucrative kick in the pants. It kind of saved my ass in a way. It just kind of gave me, you know, showed that other things were possible. And then um, I made, and then I got an invitation to do this album from the label in Spain, saying, "Hey, you want to put out a solo record?" And I was like, "Hmm, interesting notion." Um, it's really kind of an uh, EP deluxe. I ended up doing ten songs, but I, you know, it came out as a ten-inch album. Some of the songs are really short, and that album was completely improvised. Every song is written and recorded, like you know, in an hour. You know, because I, I, I was, I you know, made some pretty meticulous albums to that point, and wanted to try a very unmeticulous approach. A, 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 an approach where I couldn't go back and fix anything, uh, and that that uh, really appealed, and and that was fun to do. I didn't I didn't even tour for it. I think I did a one run on the East Coast, opening for Juliana Hatfield, and that was that was it. The one show in in uh, in Madrid.
1: So I guess you know we we talked about frosting there for a little while. You know we had a chance to go back and listen to it and pour over the songs a little bit. I'm just curious if you've gone back and listen to it at any time in the recent past, and if you have any, like, fresh thoughts on it, or if you're not the type of person, you know, that you'd like to just stick with what you're doing now and, and you don't revisit it, that's... Some some musicians are like that, but I was curious if you have any final thoughts on that record.
0: Well, um, it's, it's an interesting album. It's a fun album to play live, because it's seemingly straightforward, but it's got a couple of songs that are quite strange in terms of, like, guitar tuning and structure... It's got a couple curveballs, more than a couple, really, um, and that, that that's, but you don't really you don't really get that impression always because the production is kind of clean in a way, so it kind of it kind of balances out the the curveball nature in a, in a nice way. I mean, I, I guess that's why that album is so appealing in a certain way to, to people because uh, it kind of it, it doesn't overburden itself with the challenges that it sets for itself shall we say but it but it isn't just like it, it's not like a blink-182 album it's not that simple <laughs> um you know so it, but it's kind of produced like one in a in a, in a cool in a, in, a, in a way it's, it's, it's not quite as slick but it's simple and direct
1: so we started the show talking about the new album um danzig in the moonlight which i'm guessing has to do more with the city than the artist uh danzig correct is correct mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about some of the shows you've got coming up um, for this album?
0: Yeah, well, um, the tour. I mean, I'm you know because of this recording project, kind of had to happen now that I'm doing here in Memphis. You know, my tour is was sort of built around it. So I've already played in Istanbul, in Sweden, in Finland, in Norway, and in Germany. Uh, and those were all great shows. Really, all very different and all really cool. You can read about it on my blog, KenStringfellow And so what I have coming up, I'm heading straight from here, uh, when we're done with this project. Uh, On November 1st, I'm playing in Amsterdam with almost everybody who played on my album. So Joost Kroon, the drummer, Tim Kops, the keyboard player, J.B. Myers, kind of my, as I mentioned before, my musical partner on many projects, uh, playing bass and guitar. Um, and then the West Side Trio, who are the string players on my album, who uh, are a subset of the very prestigious Metropole Orchestra in Amsterdam. The Amsterdam-based horn players that played in my album. Singer Eva Awad, who sings backing vocals on my album, who's a great artist in her own right. I produced an album for her, or helped produce an album for her. And even, um, you know, on the uh, on the album, there's a duet. The song doesn't it remind you of something, and a kind of uh, kind of. Oh, well, kind of a rootsy song in a way With a little bit of tongue-in-cheek going on On the on the CD, it's uh, Charity Rose Thielen from The Head and the Heart Doesn't it remind you of something The way my hand was struck by your face The way all that time kept getting back in Doesn't it remind
1: you of something? The way my cheek was bruised by your kiss The way that the sunlight came down from the sky And stared up my eyes though they
2: tried to resist
0: I was bored with the things life had shown me sniffed up mad. My... upcoming video it's margaret cho and margaret has a gig in amsterdam on november 1st lo and behold and so she's going to come and do the duet with me
1: wow that's a bit of a i didn't i didn't realize that margaret cho, margaret cho uh was a singer
0: yeah I yeah she, she does sing on, on some of her albums they go into like musical stuff you know uh and um but yeah she's really good and she's a big posies fan has been for a long time and uh, we've done some other stuff together. I've got a cool piece of music that I did for her that will hopefully see the light of day on her next album. So we you know we do this one-off giant show with all these people on it, and uh, we'll film it and record it, so hopefully other people can hear that. And then I continue on more in a solo vein, usually with one or two musicians who might join me from either The City of In or whatever. So I play in Holland, I play in Belgium, I play in Denmark, I'm playing in Romania, I'm playing in... Austria Britain uh, 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 where else Spain yeah later Spain uh, I'm playing in Paris um, playing in yeah in Spain and in Ireland but a lot in Holland and stuff and then uh, you know in November there's other stuff too there's this the the uh, European premiere of the documentary on big star the big star story which is uh, it's called nothing can hurt me um, and it's brilliant. I saw it this year at South by Southwest. Um, and so it's premiering in Amsterdam at the uh, International Documentary Film Festival. And uh, Jody Stevens from Big Star and John Hour, and myself and my buddy J.B. Myers are going to play some Big Star's music at the film premiere. And I'm also involved uh, in an album by a uh, well, she's primarily known as an actress, but she's made an, a, an incredible album of music. Uh, and she's, uh, her name is Carice Van Houten. She's a Dutch actress. Uh, you can currently see her in Game of Thrones. Um, she's very, very good. Her album is amazing, and I, and, uh, I helped produce that, again, with the aforementioned JB, uh, and a whole bunch of other people playing that album. And so we're also playing some live shows in November, so it's quite a busy
1: month do you take any time off at all do you ever like take a break for a vacation or anything like that or are you just pretty much constantly working
0: uh i am pretty much constantly working except that uh i take the month of august off um i have a summer home off the coast of france on an island and uh i retreat there with my family and and hang out and just live a good life but the other 11 months and i'm i'm a machine you know i'm just working seven days a week i mean Today I'm working on this album, but I also am like cutting my own radio show for a a Swedish radio uh, station. I'm tour managing, you know, the upcoming Big Star related and my solo and other performances, you know, reaching out to bands today in in Belarus and Turkey and, you know, like arranging all these different things. I mean, I'm usually got like 25 things going on at once. Wow, you are shaming us.
2: (laughs) I noticed you, you have some very cool uh, packages when new record on the yeah, Danzig in the Moonlight website. Can you talk a little bit about just your, your thoughts on sound and music now and, and some of the things that you're trying to do to 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 uh, I, you know make something special for people?
0: Well, I mean, you know, let's let's say that these days, I mean, if you didn't have a wonderful package for your album, there'd be like kinda no point. I mean, in a way, the the, the C D inside the C D sleeve is almost a little bit irrelevant I mean it's sort of relevant I mean it's, a, it's a kind of but I think why someone would buy my album in the physical form these days would be because they, they would like to have this piece of art that the cover is um, mm-hmm. the cover is a, an illustration of an, an illustration team in Amsterdam called Mocha Rant for package design um, is by, again, Amsterdam-based Sonia van Hamel, who's also an artist whose album I also produced, and uh, she did a great job. Um, she also sings and plays on the album. Yeah, but I, I think it's a really, you know, it, it kind of, I wanted to, you know, I, w- once I'd thought of this title, Danzig in the Moonlight, which sort of re- refers to the brief early 20th century life of the city of Danzig as an independent city, um, that was sort of set aside and taken away from the the major powers who had been fighting over it, Poland, Russia, Germany, and it became a completely unique entity, sort of in between many cultures, but not belonging to anyone, and that, that is exactly how I feel. I also wanted to show that it, it's a complete world, and in that sense, the this wonderful illustration based on actual buildings you know, in in modern day Gdansk, you know, it, it looks very much like a complete world, and a world that that you want to get to know. At least that's how I, how I intended it. And and as you delve further into the album package, there's many layers to that world, and and it kind of reveals itself to you as a fairly realized and complete world. And that, that's that's what the the package is all about. And I, it has to be picked up and held in many ways to
1: get it. Very cool. Which I and you uh, can... which I am doing right now, actually. I kind of felt like it was a um, when I was looking through the packaging, it reminded me of a cross between like Baz Luhrmann and The Third Man. It was it was it's got a really cool look to it that you don't see a lot in like a lot of packaging today for art for the artwork for a lot of albums. It's, it tends to be a lot now is just so focused on the digital download that they don't put a lot of em- emphasis on on the artwork that goes into the album artwork. So that was definitely really cool to check that out
0: yeah thank you i think you know like what's trendy in in design right now is kind of like the um, how we describe it like kind of a, a messy like hand-drawn thing with like lots of cartoony stuff you know and, and lots of bright colors and lots of swirling bright colors and lots of little tiny things i can't really give you a good example of an album like that but that's very that's a very typical thing in in design right now and this album is a little bit more focused this album design is a little bit more focused and a little bit less colorful in a way it's like darker and you know and, and I, I'm gl- I, I, I like that it sticks out Yeah, definitely. so
1: people can go to danzig in the moonlight.com to purchase the record and they should also go to kenstringfellow.com and you have a blog there that you update yeah. and um, you can you're do also it all. On... If you
0: go to KenStringfellow.com, of course, if you click on shop, it'll take you to DanzigInTheMoonlight.com. So never fear. All, all roads lead to Danzig. <laughs> and,
1: and then, of course, you're on Facebook and, and Twitter, Is all yeah. the, um, all the modern Ken artists are now. Well, Ken, thank you so much for joining us. This was really uh, a great opportunity to, to revisit one of our favorite records and then also talk about You know, this great new album that's out. So, we really appreciate you joining us. And best of luck on the tour. Thanks for
0: looking me up. Thanks for your patience, you know, when you had to kind of wait for me to finish up my my gig.
1: It was actually kind of cool.
0: (laughs)
2: I'm not going to lie that when you call somebody to interview me, like, yeah, I can't talk right now. I got the vocal. It's way better than, uh, it's kind of (laughs) rough. It was all good.
1: Yeah.
0: All right, thanks, Ken. Um, Hopefully, I'll see you guys. Uh, I'll be touring a lot in the states for my album next year. Um, You know, this European tour takes up the rest of this year. Um, But hopefully, I'll I'll see you out there.
1: Yeah, definitely. Thanks, and uh, have a good evening.
0: Yeah, thank you. you
1: And we'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out.
0: A bad sign wasn't overnight wait Kids in the clubs Wanna leave feedback? Join
2: the conversation at digmeoutpodcast.com for links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed While you're there, support the podcast by visiting our donation
1: and merchandise pages And thanks for listening
0: So real A bad protect me from you boys You should've come to me first Who's got-